Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. What we're going to talk about today in terms of the, of the care for veterans is, is a paradigm a metaphor for what you might be doing for people in your world. Um, and as a good friend of mine across the hall, Harold Cudler says, and he's next door in the meeting happening next door, um, there, there's basically people that have had a trauma in their life, and there are people that are going to have a trauma in their life. Um, that's just the way life is. So what we're trying to do is equip pastors to be aware of that. And we'll we'll go through some of the reasons why we need to equip pastors and what are some of the things we need to do uh, to help support our pastors. I'm going to get all these things out of the shot because I've done enough weddings to know that you need to have the the shot for the camera ready. So this is our our plan and it was to educate. Why why do we want to educate them? And then we'll talk about some of the trauma basics. How do we empower our clergy and our faith committee? Um, and what are some of the positive and spiritual and religious coping skills? And this is just kind of the, the skeleton of our conversation today. So, so I hope all of you will chime in with questions and comments. <coughs> so, um, it turns out, and this is, this is literature from Weaver, Koenig, Oxford in 1996, so it's a little bit old, but... but the, the material just continues to flow. And you will, by the way, if you want a copy of these slides, uh, Rick will send them out or I'll send them out. My email address is john.oliver at va.gov. John, J-O-H-N, dot Oliver, O-L-I-B-E-R, at V-A, as in, I don't know, V, V-A dot G-O-V. And I'll be happy to shoot anything that you wish to have a copy of. Um, But it turns out that in times of distress, these folks found that people often turn to God and their clergy for understanding. Um, And we're going to go through some, I think, some shocking numbers here in a little bit. Um, So this is one reason why we might educate our clergy. Because people are going to them. When you have a death in your family, who is one of the people you call? You don't automatically think to call your social worker if you're not engaged with one already. But if you are... In the church, your aunt or your cousin or somebody can say, "Why don't you call Pastor Hummel?" So the idea is to is that oftentimes people turn to their clergy. Psychological trauma challenges the injured to rethink and reimagine their sense of order and um, and continuity or what is what is life about. So Claude Deal, my friend that's that's in the area, always said in, in the VA. This is, or we're in the medical center, a lot more thinking goes on there. And in your, and in your situation, when, when people run into a brick wall, they, they all start rethinking their life story. I know when my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, we all had to sit down and rethink, okay, what does this going to mean? So I'm assuming that that's true for your, in your world as well. And, and we're at, at, at war, we have to rethink. So people will often turn to their pastors to rethink. The issues of meaning and purpose for one's life are often altered. It's a very interesting time, and pastors really can be a part of that conversation. It turns out, um, and I think Rick, you would want to make sure you get this in your 
list of reasons why we have this association, the National Association for, for Christian Social Workers. Um, religious faith is a primary positive coping strategy for many suffering from psychological trauma. It is the primary coping strategy for many, many people. And, and that's an incredibly important thing to know. And so that's, that's why we try to train our chaplains to really understand what to do when a pastor comes to them and says, help me figure this out. So the chaplain hopefully can be an educator in the community. I'm hoping you as social workers will be what you're doing, Lynn, already with writing these things. Help your pastors understand what you can do. And help your clergy, I mean, help your uh, parishioners understand that it's that this is the place where we come to get help. Another, another caveat, and I'll, I'll just do it real quick. Uh, it turns out another, one of the most um, well-researched and uh, uh, important uh, inoculators for traumatic stress becoming post-traumatic stress disorder. In other words, something that you can do to help ameliorate the, the challenges, and I don't want to... I use that word about Amelia. Okay, we'll talk. Um, um, if you can, if you can, um, if, if you have a community to which you belong, or a family support structure that's strong and solid, you are less likely to develop the disorder of post-traumatic stress disorder. You're still going to go through the the physiological and psychological challenges, but it doesn't take over one's life, and so often. Clergy are at the center of a community that can be positive and helpful. So that's another thing we want to try to help people understand. And our pastors don't understand that. It's odd to me. I did in my doctoral research that I did out of Columbia Theological um, down in Decatur. I'm Baptist, but that's Presbyterian. Uh, anyway, it's okay. <laughs> um, I, thought it was okay. I, I went to Duke too, so my final was all Methodist Baptist. But in that work, pastors did not automatically think that community was that helpful. Mm-hmm. They just don't get that this is so helpful to people. It gives them a reason to get up in, um, in the morning. It gives them a direction for their lives. It helps them have peers and colleagues around them. Community is, in, in big part, the answer to a lot of what our traumatic stress injuries, um, a, a lot of what, what they need can be found in, in and I'm realizing I'm on TV, so I'm, my, my words are not always going to be exactly right. I was just—I was just thinking. I think that's one of the things the faith community can add to this discussion because our our country in general is very individualistic, very much thinking that we need to all sort of figure it out on our own. But I think the faith community, when we're at our best, talks about the body, the the community together, right. being able to add that level of support. Right. Well, and, and, you know, if you're Ericksonian in your developmental theories, it's this cogwheeling that occurs. So you have people that need one thing. They need a child, needs trust, mistrust issues. But you have the older generation that needs to be generative. So what one needs, the other also needs it to provide that. So it becomes this cogwheeling of the generations in a way that, that moves. It's well-designed. And for those of us who are, uh, have a faith... Uh, Grounding, then we understand that perhaps God meant it this way for us to have grandparents and uncles and aunts, and that all of the, all of these these people in our lives, Cogwheel, and and children can provide hope to the older generations in ways that that are extraordinarily important. So 
Okay, so I'll preach when I'm here. So oh, uh, one and a half to three quarters PTSD sufferers indicate that their faith helps them. One half to three quarters. This is Weaver, Koenig, awkward. This is not. This is not things that I would like to have made up. Although I couldn't have made it up. And it'd be do, do you think that's changed at all? If anything, it's gone, it's gone up. up. That's what I would say. But you know. now I, I would say that there are that there are lots of studies, and so you can pick the study that you want to quote. Right. Um, and there are different numbers. So we have numbers that range from half. And his, I've seen it. I've seen lower numbers in half, um, but we'll get into that in a second. But, so that, that's one reason to do it, because spiritual issues matter. So if you, as a social worker, can sit down with your pastor and say, spiritual issues matter, mm-hmm. they will help people, that's a great thing. Yeah. Another, another thing is, often, we won't, people will go to their clergy to seek counsel. So it turns out that 4 of 10, and this is where the numbers start getting different, Four of ten Americans report having requested counsel from a member of the clergy. Now, if you had four of ten people requesting counsel from a social worker, would you be happy about that? Forty percent of our population in social work care, would that be a good number for you guys? My guess is that... But, but what I'm, what I'm, I think what I'm saying is that the numbers of people that come to social worker are like 10% is that many of the population. In other words, oh, I see what you're saying. it's a lower number of people in the population that seek help from social workers than seek help from clergy. And, and there's a large number of documented studies that say by far the first person of choice for someone going through distress is a clergy person and not a professional. And, and that's kind of frightening in a way. It's terrible. They don't have those skills. That's why you are... And they don't have the sense to refer. Lynn, you are all over my doctoral dissertation. You read that. You must have read that. That is exactly my point. That's exactly... Uh, Amelia was saying, now how do you get this funded? And I said, well, I drive. Because this matters. Um, when I saw this next number, well, not this one, but this right here, this, uh, let's go real quick. For those who attend religious services, it jumps from 40 to 53%. Mm-hmm. But then in this one, this one is just startling to me. People were five times more likely to seek the aid of a clergy person than all other mental health care professionals combined. That's a stigma. That's a stigma. It's a stigma issue, and it's terrible. And, and it's inappropriate for them to go to some of our pastors, frankly, because some of our pastors just don't know what to do with it. Hence CPE, hence me going all, all over and doing this rural health training that I really think matters, because we want to try to get pastors something. I've got a handout for you that will, will be kind of, in essence, what I try to help our pastors see and understand. So... So you, you get my passion about all this, right? right. Lynn, go. We well, I was going to say, I teach um, what's called healthy boundaries uh-huh. to our clergy Good. and our presbytery, and that would fit in perfectly for saying, here are your boundaries, but you can't just write someone off mm-hmm. at the same time. You can't just say, okay, I don't work with you, mm-hmm. um, but somehow... So, and often, I hate to say this, but often... We become, um, I'm saying this in the nice way, and then I'll say what I really mean. <laughs> Let me be politically correct. We're siloed, and pastors will will say, well, that's what a social worker did, or that's what a psychologist right. did. Yeah. 
Um, so another way of saying it is that we don't listen to each other. Um, and so that my hope is that as a clergy person and as an educator of clergy, they'll listen to me, and I'm finding that some do. Um, but what I do find is that if in a church, a pastor can go to Melanie and say, Melanie, I, I've got this patient and I don't know what to do with it. And Melanie can listen using your good skills, or Faith can say, yes, pastor, tell me about it. Um, you can get that conversation going, then you can help them do their job. By listening to your pastor, you're providing a, a, a stability in that in that unstable place. You're, you're, you're a grounding for them that can help bounce stuff off of them. You can give them good referral resources. You can you can help be a boundary protector for them. Um, in other words, well, if you're going to go see him, pastor, I'll come with you. You know, that kind of thing. You if 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 we work together as a team, then they start listening and the silos start breaking down and we end up having good multidisciplinary care teams that provide the appropriate uh, care for folks. But to that small <coughs> rural churches, we do in our Presbyterian, they're not going to have a social worker or... They don't have a social worker on staff. Or not, not even in the congregation. So often they'll not have a social worker, but often in my little Baptist churches, it was surprising to me that they'll either have a school counselor, a school teacher, some sort of other professional that's in the process that's connected with some of these people. And you're right, if it's a total blue-collar, uh, non-professional place, then the pastor's job is really going to be a little harder. Uh, to get them engaged. But that's why I encourage social workers to really go to your church. I don't care which one you go to, but if you're out there, you can help support the, the folks that that are in your congregation by supporting your pastor. So, I, and, I, and I think a key piece of that is, is that works with the issue of distrust, which exists between clergy and professional services. Right. And it goes both ways. Right. So if you can find people that trust each other, and I trust you because... You're in the faith community, and you're so, well, it's okay if you're a social worker because you're in my faith community. Right. That can help um, work with those issues of trust. Apart from that, it's very difficult to generate conversations between the two communities when there aren't relationships already established. So if you have a, if in your case, in these rural, uh, and I'm saying rural, but they could be urban and, and still not be, I mean, you know, it could be a small church with little resources. This is where the beauty of the Presbytery right, comes right. in, where you can say, hey, I'm going to come talk to your church, and I'll be there Sunday to worship with you. And this is my turn to be itinerant. <laughs> I'm just going to come worship. And that's all you do. Um, and then as the relationship grows, then they might say, so you're a social worker, and that, yeah, that was my profession, but I'm really a Presbyterian first, and I write this thing first. And then those conversations begin to say, well, what does a social worker do? And it begins... If the pastor is unable, if if the pastor is able to take off the blinders, and sometimes, and some of our seminaries train this way that pastors are very narrow focused on things. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say that um, this is making me think about our capstone course in our NSW MBIT program, because that program has students who are assigned to a parish or a particular church institution, and um, they're the capstone course is geared to training clergy on a particular social issue that the church doesn't deal well with, whether it's domestic violence or substance use. Yeah, exactly. So it's been interesting to 
um, find opportunities to do the training as you're doing. They'll do at one of the annual conferences or a Wednesday night. It's been a very interesting process. It, uh, one of our students did a capstone on working with Alpine actually got a job um, in a church community where half of her work is with the elderly and they wow. at Alpine and mm-hmm. other so there are, we're, we're moving together in some good ways. We just need to make sure we continue to do that. Um, so this has kind of sparked me, this five times more likely, um, that sparked me in my, a lot of my ministry in terms of going out to, to work. And I, I hope that we can do that. But that's a really good reason to educate folks, mm-hmm. because people are coming to them. Another really good edu- reason to educate folks is that, again, they seek, now here's where one quarter of individuals seek clergy. This is a different study. But in this one, it's significantly higher then psychiatrists at 16.7 and primary care docs at 16.7. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of one of those. But this is from Wang, um, and this is a more recent study. Um, and then another reason clergy uh, providing mental health interventions, this is the one I was telling you, maybe the other thing. So when you have a group of pastors in the room, I ask them to raise their hand if they've ever provided um, pastoral care to somebody who was um, who was depressed, and so pastors will raise their hands, and often it's every pastor in the room. Then, what about substance use issues? Uh, again, people will raise their hands. What about schizophrenia? Lots of other people raise the depression, bipolar. You start naming all of the mental illnesses, and pastors are raising their hands because they have dealt with people with mental health challenges. Pastors are seeing this. And one, uh, one guy, and I don't know if I have this in slide, but yeah, right here, this slide, parish-based clergy, especially the black, the black clergy, function as a major mental health resource to communities with limited access to professional mental health services. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is sad. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not helpful, and especially if you have a clergy that views mental illness as a, as a spiritual issue. In other words, they try to spiritualize or moralize someone's drinking when it's an illness. Mm-hmm. They try to moralize someone's um, rational um, rational behavior because, they, because they're manic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they try to say, you know, if you really believe in Jesus, you wouldn't be depressed. Mm-hmm. You know, you just need to be baptized. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm depressed. I need, I need medicine. And I need people to love me. And I need people to understand me. Um, so when clergy don't understand those things, that's a huge challenge. I, I think that in this study back here, we five times more likely, the, the study also then showed in the, in the African-American community was higher than that, higher than five times. And it, oddly enough, and this is back to the same issue, in the Asian-American community, it was even higher. So those are, those are stigma-related issues. And so there are, there's huge challenges with stigma. And if a social worker can say, oh, no, she's just sick, we're going to get her. You know how sometimes you break your leg and you have to go get the doctor to work with you? She just kind of has a, she just kind of has something that's, that's kind of clicked in her head that we need to get, you know, we need to get the right medications. And once she's chemically settled, she'll be okay. And the doctors are, the, the pastors are not going to quite understand it first, um, but they'll get it eventually if we keep working. John, it just strikes me that what you put your finger on is why there's distrust the other direction. Why so much in the profession think that clergy and churches are really going to be more of the problem than the, the assistants. And that's why I think your suggestion that 
folks within the congregation who have that background are really the best folks to be able to approach those clergy because they'll understand among those weaknesses there's also potential for right. some really healthy things to happen. Whereas many in our profession really have written off the ability, particularly of smaller parishes, of ethnic um, congregations as being able to be a help and see them as an obstacle to work around. And so, again, I think a proposal is just exactly right. If you can get folks that the pastor and the clergy will listen to and, and have some level of trust and vice versa, then you've got a fighting chance. I wish I had a different slide next because you're right on money. But And when we get back to that next slide later on, I'll show you that there are some good reasons people go to their pastor and there's some bad reasons. And that, you know, this is how... If, if we as a community of people around the pastors can help them see things, then they'll do it. But uh, just kind of brief, briefly, I was trying to think. Well, we'll, we'll get to it. And, and it strikes me the bunch of us should be going around to our professional association doing the same stick exactly. and saying, hey, you guys, there's a great resources out there. Okay, it's not a slam dunk. We've got work to do. Well, but they're going to them. You know, they're going to your clergy, and if you are ignoring your clergy, you're you're not hitting 40% of the population that's going to them. Yeah. And so that, that's the challenge. So the other issue of why we want to educate, this, this is sad to me, is that divinity schools and, and seminaries often have other priorities other than, than pastoral care. In some seminaries nearby that start with a D, they don't even require a pastoral care course. Not one course is required in how to engage parishioners around issues um, that, that are personal, that could be psychological, that are certainly community-based. They, they do a lot of phenomenal work on ethics. They do a lot of phenomenal work on New Testament. They do a lot of phenomenal work here and there, but they are completely avoiding this. Um, there are also negative reasons people seek clergy's help. And so it's helpful when, if you know what, why someone's coming, you, if you can tell, so if Lynn is, my, is in my congregation and Lynn say, says, uh, you know, John, this person that's coming to you is, has got what we in our, in our circle have diagnosed as, um, what is it uh, that they often, I'm trying to think, DBT is the primary source of uh, borderline personality disorder. So if Lynn were to come to me and say, John, this person has got what we call borderline personality disorder, and so the reason she's coming to you now is because she's trying to split you and someone apart in the congregation so that, you know, and so you as a person who knows what the patterns are can help me see it and then I can I can be aware of this. And mostly there aren't there aren't very many men that are diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder. Mostly women, and there's actually a bias around that that someone in research is researching that very thing. But the point is, is if you know what you see some things, and you might say, well, you know, this is a challenge for a lot of us, and it might not be full blown borderline personality disorder. It might be seven out of ten. Six out of ten, but it sure looks like it. When, when you know, so you could say, "Well, I'm not sure. I wouldn't diagnose the person, but this is an issue." So you could help us understand that this person is trying to split. Uh, sometimes people come to the clergy for magical thinking. I had a, I had a patient. This was when I was in Pensacola, Florida. I was at um, 
was at the re- in the rehab or the substance use disorder clinic inpatient. It was Baptist Hospital in Pensacola, and I was the chaplain. So, just this was my first time ever being a chaplain, and I was learning about pastoral care. And um, my CPE supervisors, this was before I got to Duke, were saying, "Well, John, we know you can do evangelism. You've got this award. I had won this award at my seminary, Southwestern Baptist for mission. You know, I was really, I had my John 3:16 radio. I had my, you know, the, the Roman road, or I had that little, you know, that little." nugget that has the red, and then you have the yellow, and then you have the blue, and then you have the green, whatever. You know, I had all those things ready to go. So why don't you try something different with this? You know, you, you got that. That's, you know, we're glad you got that, but let's try something different. So this guy came up and said, oh, chaplain, I just need to be saved. I need to be baptized. I've got this, you know, he was shaking from DTs, you know. Uh, and uh, so I said, okay, try something different. Try something different. I was trying to think, okay, what would be different? I said, well, so tell me about that. Have you ever done that before? Oh yeah, eight times. <laughs> He'd been baptized and saved eight times. So the point is, is he wanted to avoid some stuff. He wanted to avoid the hard work of AA. He wanted to this little magic pill that the pastor could give. And let me tell you, a pastor's happy when we can slap them on the back because they're out of our office and we can do our next thing. And we have done what we want to do. You're saying, go ahead, get on out. Um, that's my biggest critique for the Billy Graham evangelism sort of movement, is that often we save them and we run. And so that's a, that's a challenge, I think, for us to think about that. But there are negative reasons, so that magical thinking is one of them. Avoiding the truth of a diagnosis. We had one guy who would come every Sunday morning, and he, he would come chaplain all over, and he was a big man. 6'4", um, and he weighed about 300 pounds. He was, he was a Marine. Through and through, even though he had retired years ago. Um, Chaplain Oliver. Um, Carol, I don't know about that. My friend next door. Anyway, um, God bless you. Uh, we can say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, the issue for him was that he wanted baptism. Uh, he didn't want baptism. He wanted holy water and he wanted communion and he wanted to play. I play in camp. Um, and so we would do these things every week. Um, but it got to a point where he was trying to make that his primary therapeutic intervention. And he needed to be on his medicines. He was full-blown schizophrenic, paranoid, delusional, all the things that happened to schizophrenics. God bless him. Um, so he was trying to avoid the psychosis. And often people will go to their clergy because they don't want, especially in wartime, if you have a pilot who goes to the social worker or to the to the psychologist, they might pull their flight credentials. And when you get your flight credentials pulled, you're no longer a captain, you're now you're getting paid less. You, you don't have the flight time. You don't have all these other things, and that's military side of things. So I don't quite understand that. But, but the bottom line is things happen to people when they go see a mental health care provider. So they might come to us as the chaplain or the pastor inappropriately. And we need to be able to know how to then refer them back carefully and gently to where they need to be. Where, where they need to be. But so there, there are positive and negative reasons for, for seeking the clergy. Um, so you're, you're sparking, you're, your idea sparked me for something, but um, I'll have to keep thinking about it. 
this, then, so we have studies show, and then this is what seminaries are doing, kind of what, why educate. And then here, finally, I want to show you that life shows us. And this is from Babylon. Um, this is an army, um, an army production, and uh, I think it's actually a pretty good picture of some of the issues that we face. Um, and I don't know if you want to drop that, drop that or not. Let's see if I can drop it. And by the way, there are some loud noises, so if it's a little loud for you, I'm sorry. Would you um, want it to shut the lights off? Yeah, I want to be quiet. If you're not, we would do that. Maybe that's probably more important. Yeah, the lights are different. I can actually eat my bagel during this one. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some good close ups of it, so it's okay. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, again, be aware there are some noises that might start. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. You say that every night, and when I go to bed and wake up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the Robert, it reminds me of what happened over there. I think he blames himself for that. 
when my wife and I were starting our family, we had a couple of really severe miscarriages, and um, Shay came over one day and said, well, she was there at the hospital with us. She said, John, give me the keys to one of your cars, and we're going to take one of your cars home. And um, do you want chicken, or do you want hamburgers? And had she said, John, is there anything we can do for you? I said, no, we're good. Just give me a call. I'm not going to give you a call. But if you tell me exactly what you're willing to do, then, then, you're, then, then I'll do it. So don't make the parishioner define your role for you. So I try to encourage pastors to really be clear about their role and understand what their, their professional engagement is. And do what you're willing to do and don't do any more because you'll be angry about it. And get somebody that's willing to do it. There are 20 people in your congregation that are willing to do something if you will just let them. So help the pastors understand that, that they need to define their role rather than expecting the Christian to do that. So, uh, but, but we'll go through that. We're going to go through the do's and don'ts here in a little bit. Um, I might have to show that. Let's keep going. This is um, in terms of pastoral offices. Um, so cha- chaplains and pastors, and I'm assuming everybody in their world, I know, Amelia, you, my guess is that you have to be writing a book right now, and you have to be doing research right now, and you have to be teaching right now, and you have to be getting grant money. Learn. Getting grant money. Getting, getting grant money. Yeah, getting grant money. Um, you have to be grading paper, so you have to be uh, administrating. I don't know how much administration work you do, but my guess is that all of us wear lots of different hats. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> do you have a few hats that you wear? Yeah. A few. I'm, I'm assuming, as a student. You, you have a lot of things you have to do too, faith is that right? And then, of course, we've heard of the author and the composer. <laughs> but you do a lot too. Then. I mean, well, well, yeah, it's amazing how much one does when they're retired. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear, and I must say, I look forward to that. <laughs> All right. So in the in the typical world of pastoral care, we we talk of four major components of pastoral responsibility. The first one is education. The second one is worship. So they lead in education and they lead in worship. The third one is uh, evangelism. That's their job as a pastor. That's where they see themselves. Uh, The fourth one is pastoral care. And so these are all different offices within the pastoral care. And of course I added a couple of things here. Theological reflection is one of the main ones that can overlap them all. And this is the pastor's training, seminary training, coming to work. So they've learned about ecclesiology, soteriology, um, epistemology. They've learned all of these fancy words from their seminary that they're supposed to be incorporated into all of their work. But often what happens is you have a, you have a denominational and, a, and an institutional interest in one or another one of these over the others. So if you're not careful, your church can be more educational-based or more worship-based or more evangelism-based or more pastoral-based and there's no balance. And the pastor needs to find the correct balance for themselves. Um, now, the next next segment of our conversation will be about empowering clergy, how to help them understand the natural, predictable, emotional, psychological uh, things about trauma. So we're going to talk about that. And these are the other two things we'll try to talk about today. Well. So briefly, for those of you who don't know about trauma, and I'm assuming most of y'all are familiar with the DSM-4R and the DSM and all of those things, but there are several different criteria and I strongly, strongly encourage pastors never to diagnose. Oh, Faith, that sounds like you've got PTSD. Mm-hmm. The second you say that to somebody as a pastor, I ain't got that. And I'm not talking to you anymore. 
um, because of the stigma, because of all the different issues that go along. Um, the other problem is sometimes when you say that, I do have it, and maybe they hadn't, <laughs> it can become a self-fulfilling thing. Um, but, or, or they live more into it. I'm not quite sure it's self-fulfilling on its own. I think there has to be, obviously, other elements going on that we'll get our psychiatrists and psychology friends to this with the diagnostic criteria. But anyway, these are four major things that happen for folks as they're experiencing uh, that, that lead to traumatic stress injury. The first one is prolonged ex exposure to events that provoke terror, horror, and helplessness. So you can imagine that in a flood, this could be this could happen. But in a flood, it comes and it goes. You can imagine that in a fire, this would be terrible and it's horrible. Um, but those two things are not intentionally done to you, and they're not, someone's not after you. So that's not quite, that's not the only thing that's going on. But, so war is a little different in that people are actually trying to get you, and it's personal. They want you out of the picture um, because of the uniform you're wearing and what you represent. Um, so that's one element. The next one is wear and tear, just traumatic stress. I, I read a story. Um, have you seen the Pacific? It's out of the HBO series of, of movies. It's, it's not as good as the book, um, or one of the books that I read out of that. It's, uh, it's with the old breed, from Peleliu to Okinawa, by Eugene Sledge. That book defines this wear and tear issue and stress. And he talks about being at war, uh, shooting mortars, day and night, in the rain, in the mud, building, digging holes, moving forward, getting dead people out here and there. Just, it's just horrific what some of our men and women have gone through. And we don't quite understand the wear and tear that we're not. Jake, the guy that came back with some of the they have been through some things that we can't imagine. And, and some of it is lack of sleep while they're down rain. Some of it is they're just exhausted from running to save their lives day in and day out for hour on end, that hour and hour. Um, so then that one's a wear and tear, life threat, loss, death or injury of others who love one or with one with whom one identifies. That's a big traumatic stress um, indicator. And the inner conflict sometimes and oftentimes the inner conflict is as much wearing and tear, wearing and tearing on you as the actual event. Oh my God, I can't believe I had to do this. Or why are people doing this? What a huge waste! And what all of these these places where people said this is a conflict, an inner conflict. I cannot believe I am having to do this. This is terrible. Um, I have another slide. There's a, there's another slide that I didn't include today because. Um, so I'll include it anyway. Uh, but the idea is in war, 98% of folks received incoming artillery. Uh, in war, they saw dead bodies. In war, they saw dead, on and on and on. All of these things, they, one of their loved uh, friends died or whatever. All of these things are happening consistently and constantly while at war. Uh, my point is, war is one type of trauma. But rape or if you have people coming in from another country where there's political, um, political uh, sort of uh, like apartheid and all these other things that are going on, I'm particularly thinking of the genocide. In Africa. So those are 
Reminds me of playing Pac-Man for years. Um, so the the point is is that there are different types of trauma. Okay, things that a pastor might see instead of the typical stuff, they might see marital disagreements. So someone is not doing well with their family, that might be what they see. Their child is not behaving well in children's choir. That's what they might see. And it might be traumatic stress or war related. Financial problems, homelessness, all of these things are different things that folks see. Uh, there are, in my way of thinking about it, seven major reactions or sequela to traumatic events. Cognitive reactions and that thinking is blurred. Um, and there's lots of stories that I can tell you about that, but let's keep moving. Physical. It physically changes you when you have a traumatic event occur. Physiologically, people come back and their hyperarousal is, is now physically embedded. Their, their need for adrenaline rushes, those are physical changes, not to mention any other war wounds that might occur. And frankly, in this war, um, Orthopedic injuries are huge and very debilitating, as are traumatic brain injuries, which are different than post-traumatic stress issues. But but when they combine, it's 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 hell. So then you have so you have cognitive, physical, emotional, behavioral, the tons of emotional reactions. Like the big one is just numbness. I'd rather be numb than than afraid. I'd rather be. I'd rather be. I'd rather not feel anything than mm-hmm. feel this pain. So pastors need to understand grief. They need to understand numbness. They need to understand withdrawal. All those things that are going on. Behaviorally, they, there's oftentimes seeking. There's adrenaline-seeking behaviors. There's uh, violent behaviors. There are things that are going on behaviorally that occur. Socially, they're withdrawn often, um, or they only or they only engage with certain people. Is this interesting, or do I mean I don't I, I can keep going? But to me, the big one that I work with pastors on is I've come up with twelve spiritual sequela that I think are important, and these are the ones that I've come up with: confusion about God, questions of the Odyssey, and we I don't, we don't really have the time today to go through all of these. But the bottom line is these are major spiritual reactions that occur for folks, and this is where the pastor needs to step up. The pastor does not need to step up in terms of helping them with their um, cognitive stuff necessarily. I mean, it's great if they do. They don't need to step up with their physical reactions. But they do need to know and be aware of and find ways to connect with families and parishioners and and the rest of the congregation around what are some of the things that we face as sequela, spiritual sequela after after, uh, trauma. So confusion about God, questions of theodicy, why do bad things happen? Great book, Harold Kushner, old book, Why Do Bad Things Happen? Mm-hmm. People are writing back and back. Um, grief and loss. Grief is such a huge issue. And one of the problems, and one of the gifts and one of the challenges for pastors is that grief is normal. It's not pathological to be sad. It is not pathological. You don't need to diagnose somebody with sadness. They should be able to feel sadness. They should live with it. There are community responses to grief that are appropriate. Those need to be addressed and helped. <laughs> Those need to be engaged. When it becomes complicated grief, you need to step in as professionals to help look at what are the complicated issues. When it's a diagnosable issue, go for it. But pastors don't 
Pastors are afraid that you're going to take away their jobs of doing the non-pathological care that they should be doing, like leading a memorial service, or like talking and listening to life stories and life review, or like helping with um, wonderful family uh, traditions and how do you, what would you like to be a tradition, how would you like to mark this time together. Those are not pathological. Pastors need to be involved in those. Social workers and psychologists and all, welcome to them and, and enjoy them and be a part of them, absolutely. But that's a, it's helpful if it's not pathological at first and that the pastor understands what is pathological. So, oh, there's a, this, there's a red flag going on over here and I need some help with this one. But this one I got because this one is, it's going to take six years for this person to grieve their, their, their wife or their husband. It just takes a long time. But I, as their pastor, am going to be there with them, and we as a community can support them, and they may or may not need professional help. Now, often I encourage professional help anyway, just right off the bat. As a matter of fact, if you know some good marital therapists, I, I, I've got a slot or two for handing out uh, for, for people that are getting married, so if you know of anybody. I, does anybody know um, Waugh, Stella, Stella Waugh, does that name something? She's a social worker in this area that I've used to great effect because I hope people will go to a therapist before they run into trouble and so that when they do run into trouble, there's no stigma, there's no mystique about the whole thing in, in addition to the pain. So, bottom line, we can work together and when pastors understand what is, what is really sick behavior and you can help keep eyes out on that, they, they will say, I can't really do more than I'm doing. I'm still going to be their pastor, but I'm not. I'm not going to give up my pastoral functioning. But I am not a trained counselor. I cannot swim in that lane. It's not appropriate for me to try to be the therapist. So anyway, but but and likewise, it's helpful if other people understand what their other professions understand what they're best at and how they can best support and engage. What What is it like with a veteran who's coming home? in terms of they've been there, you know, in Iraq or wherever for a year or two years over and over and over again. And they they come home already um, past the pastoral a pastor's ability. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well so I would like to say some do come back past the pastor's ability. Some do not come back right. past the pastor's ability. Yeah, I mean, I can so it would as a matter of fact the studies I've been seeing is that 30% of folks um, develop, I think it was 28% was the last number I saw of people that get diagnosed with a traumatic illness, either post-traumatic stress disorder or, or you know, one of the lighter versions of that in the DSM. You know, they have a different number for that, you know, anxiety or what I encourage pastors to do is always be pastor. Always be the pastor. And sometimes that means, you know, I can't dig with this. And, and when, I'm, when I'm the pastor and I have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> and I'm trying to say, no, that's not a nail. That's a screw. Let's get someone with a screwdriver. <laughs> they can work with this tool. That's an Allen wrench. Let's get Mr. Allen to come work with that. <laughs> um, so you don't, you can't. So the idea is that we want to try to empower clergy to understand what they're offering. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they don't know what they're offering because they haven't been trained that that their work with community, when I did my research, my doctor, pastors did not indicate at all that they understood that that was 
a key resource for people with trauma. And frankly, the literature hadn't said it yet. And now there's literature all over the place saying a community is the best, uh, the best deterrent for a diagnosis or the best, the best help, the best positive coping skill um, for folks. But the, the other thing, the piece that I wanted to make sure we talked about, um, why people also go to their clergy, and it wasn't on there. There's some good reasons they go to, and I, I really want to make sure we do this, but there are good reasons people go to their clergy. One, they're known. So Johnny went to war when Johnny was 18, but Johnny was 18. He had 17 and a half years of experience with his pastor or his church or his aunt Tilda, who was a part of a church, and they knew this person. So that's a good reason. It's because they're known and they, they're, they're people that people trust in the community. Parking is easy. Insurance is easy. I mean, all of these things are easy. There's no need to sign up for a, an appointment, typically. And those are really actually important issues. Um, another, another one that is incredibly important is that my pastor knows my cultural context. I don't have to go in and explain to my pastor what my whole life was about prior to this experience happening. Because they already know. So if you are in an African American church, the pastor understands the racism and the effects of all of that and, and assumes that that occurred in the military experience as well. If you're Asian American, that pastor is Asian American, they, under, they understand all the geek references and all the terrible things that they've had to go through and all the gifts and challenges. They understand the cultural context. So pastors can be great resources for folks to, to um, and great resources for the professional community to come in. I really would love for a pastor to say, tell me, kind of, in your church, what does it mean when someone drinks a lot? Well, you know, this is what it's meant before. And so then we have this dialogue about what it means before, and now, okay, so what about when someone's really hurting and they need some support? Then we can have this conversation about how things can work. One, one of the things pastors do es que ellos empiezan a hablar en un idioma que es, que, que es suyo, que ellos quieren decir lo que ellos quieren decir, y la gente no entiende lo que están diciendo, aleluya. Right? So that occurs, and a pastor has their preacher speak, totally above them, or beside them, totally irrelevant to them. So we have to speak the same language, and that's kind of the idea for, for, for me, is to help clergy speak a language or listen to a language and, and we'll get to that. Okay. John, just one other that we've heard a lot about. When you speak to your pastor, you have a really good chance that they're not going to belittle you for your faith or your religion or where right. you are spiritually. No, not only not belittle you, they'll encourage it. Right. And, and where, where you go to professional, you run the risk of them thinking that's part of your problem. Well, and, and sometimes it is part of the problem. <laughs> I mean, so that's the balance, right? And because this last one right here, so we have this feelings of guilt, things they've done, things they wish they hadn't done. I came back and my buddy didn't come back. And there's all sorts of, and I've got hours and hours of slides on this if you want something. I'd be happy to share them. But this is a challenge right here because sometimes those convictions are the black and white thinking that will, that is now, I am now, I've got this, uh, it's the difference between an ectoskeleton and an endoskeleton, where you have this faith that is my protector around my soft core, versus I have this faith that supports my whole being. Mm -hmm. 
and that inside I can move these fingers and that there's because there's bones inside of them. There's an internalized uh, strength that faith can offer. If this last one is an ectoskeleton, it's going to take one or two well-placed chisel hammers and that faith is going to crumble. So from that standpoint, going to a clergy person either could be an asset or it could reinforce that black and white view of the world. Because in the church that I was raised in, if I had gone to my pastor, I would have gotten not very helpful counsel from a spiritual perspective. I would have had a high level of trust. Right. Um, but that wouldn't have panned out. On the other hand, at that point, we wouldn't have gone to someone who was not a clergy because we distrusted the profession. Exactly. Yeah. So th- this is, I mean, that's, that's a great a great reality for a lot of us is to understand it. And, and part of what I'm saying to social workers is that a big part of what we can invite you to bring to your congregations is this sense of real human life experience and that no, Johnny doesn't need to be baptized again. Johnny needs to stop drinking. <laughs> that's just all there is, Pastor. <laughs> it's just that. But <laughs> let's get Johnny stop drinking and then we'll talk about baptism later. But Johnny's got to stop drinking. Trosa needs to adopt this person for six months or whatever. And I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard time placing my veterans. I just have a hard time. There are just not enough vets out there. Sorry, camera, VA. I didn't mean that. That's not all the VAs. <laughs> I speak only for my personal three people that I've had trouble getting placed. Um, and one finally got placed in the healing. Caring house healing, healing place. healing place in Raleigh. But that's the kind of thing is if you can offer a voice of, of not black or not white, but kind of, well, let's talk about this, kind of dialogical, that's a great gift. So, is, that, is that where you're going? I mean, are we, are we on the same page with that, Rick? Did we exact same page. Right? I mean, I don't know if we it's, danced around I, I wrestle with people who see a cure-all going to clergy, and I wrestle with people who say it can never help and what your challenge is to say is, there's some weaknesses, some strengths, but we can accentuate those strengths by bringing our professional skills and those relationships we have with them to help support our clergy. To me, that's just right on the mark. That's same right. page. How are you guys doing? Thoughts, comments? Are you, are you, are you with me, Melanie? I'm with you. Do you have any? I mean, <laughs> I it. Do you want to shake anything up? I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's make sure we get where y'all want to go. So, Glenn, mm-hmm. hey. Amelia? So good? Okay. Good I, so far. I just wanted to say, what, what I've learned that's new for me is this whole idea of working at the denominational level. Because I, up till now, most of the discussions I've heard is you work with individual clergy or individual faith communities. Right. But being able to work at the denominational level, I, I think that has huge potential, mm-hmm. particularly since in many mainline denominations, the sizes of churches and resources are shrinking. And there just aren't going to be as many internal resources. But if you can get some of this work done at the don- denominational level, there can be a sharing of resources with those small rural exactly. congregations yeah. that you just can't replicate on the ground. That's been a real insight for me. Well, I, I'm, you're making me think of, I've got some people that are part of churches that are not denominational. They're, they're these kind of these independent right. church. Right. Right. I'm thinking at that what I might do at my, at my VA is... Um, come up with a, an hour-long conversation how to talk to your clergy about about trauma mm-hmm. or about veterans issues mm-hmm. or about, you know, just kind of have a lunch and learn and let's, how do we talk to our, 
I just kind of do a lunch and learn thing. My really, really good, yeah. good way to do that. And this this is a chance if you're in a you know in a in a setting where you have students, and I don't know if it would be appropriate necessarily in your role, but it might be to just say, how do we talk to pastors about X? How do we talk to nurses about Y? I mean, dear Lord, don't get me started on sometimes our psychiatric nurses don't understand that there is secondary trauma that occurs to the nursing staff when they are exposed to all of this day in, day out. And then when they get hit in the face, there needs to be some sort of protective situation built and started. So, uh, uh, there's just a, the area of clergy and and a parishioner who is reluctant to come to clergy because of their um, sexual orientation. Right. And what what will happen if I talk to them about right. that? Right, so that's, I mean, that's a huge issue for a lot of our more conservative mm-hmm. um, gay and lesbian transgender. Right. Um, yeah. And if you're a soldier who's coming back, um, yeah. why would I talk to my pastor? Sure. Yeah. And I don't want to. It's scary. I mean, it's scary to talk to them about um, things that, that seem to be clear to some people in terms of their their hermeneutic and not clear to other people in terms of their hermeneutic. And so if you have a hermeneutic of one sort of hermeneutic, you're going to see certain things in the scripture. That's how you make the meaning of it. Um, and if you have another set, then it's going to be another. And so um, when people determine or think about their sexual orientation, often they're hearing voices from the past that, that have been um, that, that have come out of a hermeneutic that this particular, that this is a moral issue, not a creation that created like this issue. So, but that's a conversation, a, a very good one to have um, with folks too. So. Let's, let's go here. Here's some things I try to help folks who pastors do. Is on the one side, I have them talk about traumatic stressors. Um, and so typically, when we have a day, this is where you and I start. And then Amelia and I got here, and I, what happened to me this morning? My daughter, I had to take her iPod away. So it was a little stressful because she doesn't like her and then uh, one of my kids is allergic to a dog, but he really wants a dog, and so do I. So, you know, daddy, I want a dog. Uh, then I, I nearly get hit by somebody on the road, or what the deal was for me. I could not find your physical address on your website very easily. It's a very, it's a very bottom, but, but so I couldn't find so my anxiety going up. And then finally, something horrible happened when I was in full-blown crisis. So this is the typical crisis wave, and I'm sure you're familiar with so they're on one side traumatic stressors and then on the other side there are coping skills so it might be deep breathing obviously having a therapist or counselor speak to somebody music it might be exercise and all these other things so I typically talk to pastors about this side of the scale and then this side of the scale and then what I do here is of course this is the typical resting place for folks that are affected by trauma that is the typical resting place it's just one bump in there and two serious crises so you, what are some coping skills that we can help them find? And, and that's a really important. That's really great. Yeah, I like that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and Pastor, you can understand that. That's just a simple thing. They're just, they're just, I, I, when I'm in, I'll typically talk about the difference between Harley Davidson and and then and then someone with post traumatic stress comes up, and what do they sound like? They sound like the Kawasaki. <laughs> what happens when you pop a clutch? No one revving at that test. Unless you're a really good driver, if you pop a clutch like that, something happens. You're going to fly out all over the place. Now, if you're a good driver, you can make it work. But that was a joke that one that I'm a good driver. I can make it work. But, uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe this time, right? But when it's raining outside, and yeah, exactly. So, but the point is, is there's a different rev rate for people, and that's that's what I got to with that. Um, you might know Judith Herman's work, and I spelled her name wrong up there. Don't look at that slide, people. Don't take it. Didn't even get the camera over there. Good. Fix it right now, because I don't fix it right now. You know that Cornelia and y'all and. By the way, you're welcome to any of these slides if you want. It's it right there. So I can, I can put them in my little newsletter? Oh, no, absolutely. However much you want to put in there. Get your next issue halfway written already, huh? <laughs> I'm going to give you a handout that might even help you even more. But electronically, you want as well. Okay. Her work is actually very, very good. You like her work? Yeah, I do. I do too. I think I think and I think frankly pastors can really engage this work. Well, not my batteries are halfway through, so we've got to, I've got to stop when my battery says stops. <laughs> you can't plug it in. Do you have a plug it? Yeah, no. We we need to finish it well. <laughs> It'll be. Um, so safety, creating safety is the first thing. Right. If you know, so Pastors need to create safety for their veterans when they come back. And safety is not a morning breakfast with 2,700 men and three veterans coming home. And everybody has it. So did you kill anybody? So did you kill anybody? What's it like? Okay, well, you know, these, these are things that are just not perfect. Um, that's not safety. So I've encouraged there's some ways that we can train clergy to create naps for returning home and standing Having other veterans perhaps be their buddy, their reintegration buddy, and you know whatever ideas they can come up with, safety is a key issue. The next thing she talks about, and this is pastoral, if you ask me, is remembering and mourning. The lament psalms are phenomenal, and this is where Walter Brueggemann down at Columbia Theological, the psalms of lament. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. You cannot get to Psalm 23 trusting that through the valley of the shadow of death that God will be with you if you don't honestly admit Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is, ah. Uh, Psalm 23 is, and yet. But you need someone to help you with this remembrance in the morning. And it's kind of like step five, is it, or step four in AA where you make amends and you really do the work that you have to do. You have to do the work with somebody that gets it. And reconnection is incredibly important for people. There needs to be a connective community. And this is, again, back to her work. Uh, I just I think her work is great. Uh, so pastors can listen to this. So when we, when we talk of safety, these are some things I talked to them about. It's offering calm, safe, non-judgmental, non-anxious presence. I invite them to provide clear, reliable boundaries, as I do everybody. Uh, be present. So it turns out that if you, you invite G.I. Joe's wife and kids over for Thanksgiving dinner, 
um, while he's deployed, or while G.I. Jane is deployed, you offer to take her kids to school at 7.30 in the morning, every morning, because it's on your way to work anyway, then G.I. Joe and G.I. Jane are much more relieved, and they, they trust that people are caring for them. These little things go a long way if a pastor or the community can be present with them. So my, my the, I'm going to go to this board here for a second. And, you know, are you familiar with Franklin, Jane, uh, James Franklin's work here in town, the, the um, Caring Communities? Do you know, you know about the Caring Communities Network? It's a, so you have a veteran, say, like this in the middle of this. And, and this was big with the AIDS virus, uh, the AIDS issues of the 1980s and 90s when we started. And, and a community forms around them with different people that have different things to offer, right? So these, this is a, this is a mechanic. This is a mom. This is a, a major in the army. I'm just doing all that stuff. Uh, this is a cook. This is a what's another C? A chaplain. This is a house cleaner. House, a cleaner yeah, a car mechanic. Uh, this is a lawyer. This is you know whatever else you want to put on here. Social work, we're going to have one of them, nurse, physician. <laughs> These are the people that have decided to join in a team around this person, right? So this, this person now has, and by the way, there's some great research that shows that this, building, having a team like this in your community, ends up being as helpful for these people mm-hmm. as it does for this person. So your veteran needs help. Well, they encourage us, and this is a really, and I, I think, you, if, if you don't, I, James isn't there anymore, but it's, um, I'm, I'm trying to think who the new director is, but they, they have this, they have this program where, it sounds like something, do you know Stan Yancey? That's who was the new director. Oh, okay, yeah, because I mean, as you're talking about, it sounds like yeah. Stan Yancey has talked about. Exactly, right? so. So this is, the, this is the idea that we're hoping to build these networks. And one of these people steps up, and we'll say that it's you. So you are going to be the person. Why owe you? You are, you are this person's um, intermediary for all of these things. Okay. So you talk directly to the veteran and say, what is it that you need? Or the AIDS patient, or the, in, in some cases, the Alzheimer's or cancer patient. There are all sorts of teams that form in churches. Um, what does the mechanic want to do? The mechanic says, well, you know, I've got, a, I've got an extra car. If they need an extra car, I'll be happy to fill it up with gas and let them borrow that while their car's in the shop. Fine, no, not a problem at all. That's what they needed. They don't need everybody, as Stan Yancey would say, they don't need everybody to cook them a bean casserole. Right? <laughs> what they need people to do is different things that they know and love to do. So for me, I'd love to go watch a movie. Hey, I'm going to a movie. You, you, my kids and I are going to see this movie. Would you? Would, would it be okay? Yeah, you know, whenever you can see a movie, that'd be great. So building a community around these folks is really helpful. What happened in one case, a, a veteran, and we don't, we don't let our churches have veterans' names, but we will let the veteran have a church's name. Does that make sense in terms of the HIPAA yeah, issues? Yeah. Um, so... A church, and it sounds melodramatic, but it, it happened this way, and I don't know how else to describe it. One of my social workers, very religious and engaged in his church individual, which, by the way, he should be here. Mm-hmm. Corey Clone. I'm going to have to Corey Clone if you're watching this. Um, great guy on our, great guy on our team. Um, 
he came up and said, you're never going to believe what happened. We had this church that said, hey, Chaplain Alford, will you come talk to us? There were, it was a Wednesday night thing, and I went to talk to the church and said, this is what trauma is, this is what people go through. And, you, you know, just kind of, how can we help? Well, here's three ideas, and I gave them one of adopt a veteran. So they adopted this veteran, and long story short, they, they did Christmas for him. They were willing to do that. They couldn't be engaged in his life much beyond that. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they could do. He was grateful. Bikes for the kids, food for the table, presents for everybody. Um, a veteran was driving it over with his wife. They realized this individual was in a crisis mode, and he was, he was on the phone with Suicide Help Line. They grabbed the guy with his you know, consent, and they brought him to our psych ward, and they helped him out. And that's a very melodramatic iteration of what's occurred. Often it's someone taking someone to the dentist or someone um, helping someone with legal issues or someone being having a meal for them every third Tuesday. Uh, that's often what those things are. But Stan Yancey, if you don't have him, it sounds like you do, but that's a yeah, phenomenal yeah, resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love what they do there. Yeah. And I, if I could be on their board, I wouldn't have time, but I would love to. I just, I love what they do. Because that's the kind of thing where we begin to come together. And all of our gifts, and we as a body, can do different things for each other. Because we have different interests. I'll sit down and play the piano with anybody. I had a friend whose husband was dying, and they wanted, they I used to sing opera, and so I, what we say is that if he ends, I can defend myself on the Um So, would go and, he was dying and they wanted to dance and so I, I played a bunch of old songs and What a Wonderful World and you know things like that and they were able to dance but that's what I can do and I, I enjoy doing it and that's part of me as a team and that's what I'm willing to do I'm not willing to go over and mow their lawn every day or every week I'm not will, I can't do those things but what I can do, I can do and it turns out there's a garden club that loves mowing lawns and taking care of people so it's just this whole idea that we have different gifts you need to know Stan Yancey. Can you get him connected mm -hmm. to Stan Yancey? Oh, yes, I think he sure. needs to be. On, you need to be on each yeah. other's board. Yes. Yeah. The resources that he's offering, we need to get up. Yeah, he, it's phenomenal. He'd be a great speaker. I, I, and I know him from the MS Thirty and Good program. God, he's good. He's, 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 he's spoken to us, but never about caring communities per se. Oh my God. So I know as you were talking about this, it sounds like Stan Yancey, but he's talked about the integration of the MS Thirty and Good for himself. Well. He's great. And there's another guy that was the former director, James Franklin. I can't remember what his name. Oh, something. Anyway, Stan will know who that is. But he's now in DC with AARP doing a lot of the same work. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Lynn. So, is that a formal organization of people that you, you actually. Well, you actually. It's best if it's formalized because, Lynn, mm -hmm. let's say you are going to be the point person. Mm -hmm. You educate the team. Mm -hmm. Here's some things you never do. You never call them after 8 in the evening. Here's some things you never do. You never go over and do anything alone. Mm -hmm. Here's some things that you, you get to set the framework for mm -hmm. how the care is occurring in conjunction with what that individual needs, wants, and, and is mm -hmm. technically in and so that individual doesn't necessarily know who the team is? They, they, they can or they cannot. Yeah, the okay. team can be big enough to where they don't know everybody. Right. But they will know that you are the yeah. point person. For yeah. okay. And I think as John alludes, typically the process starts off with a rich needs assessment. 
because you don't want to just gather people to have people right. in your circle, right. but you define what are some of the priority needs, and that leads to suggestions and recommendations about, well, who could help mm-hmm. fulfill that particular need. So, so that's one direction to go. And I think there's a better approach. Okay. And, uh, I mean, uh, it's... It's a social worker. Though. A needs assessment. Kind no, of it's needs and as a pastor, I would say the other is absolutely as important, if not more so. What do you love? What is When you turn around, Melanie, at the end of your days, what do you want to see? What is your vocational calling? And how can I, as the pastor, inspire you to engage and, and live out with your education, your history, your personal engagement with things, that, that your awareness of illnesses that you might be connected to? How can you use those to help the body? So that would be the direction I would come from. And then, well, you know, we've got this person who, who needs this or that. And you've got, I had a guy that was in my CP program who was an artist and a movie buff, and he loved going to movies. And I'm not kidding. He's a great person to go to a movie with. Um, <laughs> you know, and to take the kids to. But, and, and the idea is that it's just what you love, and how does that convey itself into some sort of a ministry opportunity. Because so, I almost would never come up in a needs assessment. Exactly. <laughs> and one of the needs actually is what, what do you want to do too? So veteran in the middle, what do you want your legacy to be with all this too because frankly that's what comes up in a spiritual assessment is it, what are you doing vocationally in terms of how are you connected with life meaning and purpose because if you ain't got that why the heck are we here so anyway I have a big thing we're going to talk about listening I have a challenge for you guys this way can you do an intake interview with a patient and ask zero questions no questions whatsoever for your intake assessment. Melanie, I'm going to charge you with that. <laughs> okay, so here's the reason why I'm asking. I don't think it's possible all the time. But for a pastor to come in, and let's say faith on your pastor, or your chaplain, and you're in the bed, and I come up and say, do you read the Bible? Do you pray? Do you, you know, what, what am I conveying to her as the patient when I come in and ask those direct and powerful questions, what happens? I have taken over the conversation. You don't get to tell me what your day is like. I have, um, I have made you answer yes or no questions. And again, these are, these are you would probably ask more open-ended questions, I'm sure. But the idea is that how can we, and this is what I train my, we have uh, with, our, with our CPE students, we do verbatims, you know, a verbatim where they do verbatim, verbatim what happened in the visit. Yeah. And I say to my students, after the third question, I'm putting it down and we're done for the day. <laughs> I, just, I don't want to read more. Um, it's a challenge, and of course, obviously, it's just I'm trying to overcorrect. <laughs> so you have to be careful with that, too. But the idea is it's, it's a game to play with yourself. Can I notice something instead of, instead of, um, Miss Faith, what a great name. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that name comes from somewhere really important in your family's story. The story then, I'm noticing the name, she can tell me what she wants to. Yeah, my parents were Christians or they weren't, or whatever she wants to do. Uh, Mr. Jones, I see you got your car keys in, in your pocket today, and I was, you know, just curious about it. Yeah, they won't be dry, but it just feels really great to have the keys. Rather than, what are you doing with your keys in your pocket? You've got Alzheimer's, you're not supposed to be dry. Um, so, 
just kind of noticing versus asking. So that's the challenge that I have. So that's on this good listening skills handout. And I give this to pastors, and I hope that they understand how to do this listening skills. So creating safe spaces, being okay with silence, you can see all of those. So that's kind of what I encourage folks to do. And if you can notice things, you can ask fewer questions. And I do, I really do challenge all of you in your work to try that someday. Um, with somebody that you know fairly well, just try not asking so many questions and see what happens. Um, and, then, and then tell me, Oliver, that was the dumbest thing I ever did. I had to go back and do a whole new assessment. <laughs> I, would, I would get that. And, um, and if I'm not careful, I reduce what you do to my understanding. So I don't want to reduce uh, social intake to, to something that I might you know, do. But for us, the spiritual assessment, when we do an assessment, we value that as a pastoral engagement as much as anything else. And I would wonder if a social worker could view their initial intake as a relational building thing as much as a, as a getting things boxes checked. That's thoroughly consistent with who we are and, and the way we want to do things. The, the other big risk about asking all those questions is you set your expectations on the person you know, do you pray? Do exactly. You, uh, immediately, it's you should be praying. Right. And if you're not, there's something you're not doing. And the greatest, the greatest. I saw this cartoon. This this lady, this nurse, was in with a patient. She had this big needle. It looked like a horse. I mean, it was a cartoon. <laughs> and she was bending over this patient. Do you believe in Jesus? <laughs> well, what do I say? If I'm Jewish and I don't, if I'm Muslim and that's not exactly my faith. But if I do, is she Muslim? And if she, you know, is she is she going to be mad at me if I do or what? I, well, I can't answer that question. You know, I don't because we're we're living it. So well, know, it's, it's important. Those questions are all about you. Exactly. It has nothing to do with me. It's all about you. So. And it sets the tone with their nerves, trying to figure out what you're wanting them to say, rather yeah. than finding out what's right. on their heart and mind. Yeah. Right. And it and it often avoids pain that they're in in the moment. So if I can say something about you, I noticed, so I had, I was a Duke and this guy, you know, I met him pre-surgery and then, and then post-surgery and he got this, this, you know, those neck things, that they call, the halo is what they call it, where they can't move the neck side. So, man, that is quite some contraction they gave you. Instead of, what is that? You know, and so by doing that, he could say, yes, it's painful and it hurts right here where they go in. But in his case, it's, yeah, I can't wait till my kids see it. We're going to hang some things here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't know where he was going to go. But that let him go, you know, in the direction that he wanted to go. Yeah. So, I mean, it might have been a little delusional because of the anesthesia. But anyway, that's what he was. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the point is, often we drive the conversation in ways that are, end up not being helpful, and it's not us. Now then, I talk a lot, and this is a lot about me and pastors. Are you guys, are we connecting around things that make sense to you and what might be helpful for your engagement with your pastors and with your students and with your colleagues and friends? Okay, well, we'll keep going. We have a few more. This is the remembrance and warning. We talked a little bit about that, but one of the big problems is that people end up trying to memorialize folks. Memorialize, they, they don't want to remember, or they get stuck in the past. And I had a student once who talked about, and I forget which poet it is, but there's a poet who talks about living in the past, always living in the past, and not ever being able to live in the present or the future. So in some respects, trauma is 
is as much as anything a chronological issue that people are no longer able to move uh, into what is now or what the future might be because they are trying to memorialize people to being um, who, they, who they want them to be. Reconnecting all of these things about building, and this is another one of those. This is actually, this is a great reference for you guys to know. Carolyn Yoder uh, wrote this book. It's called The Little Book of Trauma. <laughs> and, and it's a Mennonite book that is phenomenal, and it's just really worth looking at. And, with a name like Yoder, you almost assume they're nice. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it had a lot to do with peace and reconciliation for folks that were out, you know, that were political refugees as much as anything else. And, and political trauma is horrible. And in some respects, that's kind of how I got into this. I grew up in South America. The drug wars were beginning as I was leaving. My cousin was in World War II, came back, and doesn't ever fly anymore, and has you know, traumatic responses. And so these are, and I'm at the VA, so these are all reasons why I do it. But, but Yoder's talking about some really important issues of military sexual trauma, rapes, etc. But also the huge challenge of helping people find safety when they live in a politically unstable environment. Or, you know, something else, there's no resolution to this, how do we help them? So she, she's got some good stuff. Uh, I talked a little bit about concentric circles, and I, I talked about the care. So right here, the veteran being in the middle. If we, as if, so, when something happens in the middle of the pond, you throw the rock in the pond, it just the, the waves go out, right? It affects the whole pond. If you're a family systems person, then you understand that it's kind of the, the web of within within that everybody's connected one way or the other. So what I would say is that not only does the trauma affect all the way across. But also, if you can provide support at any one of these levels, it also reverberates or, or um, stabilizes the community. So if you can stabilize the spouse, you're also stabilizing the veteran, you're stabilizing the care providers, and you're stabilizing the community at large. So you as a social worker, if you can step in and help with this, the pastor and stabilize the pastor a little bit, it will ripple back in positive ways. It stabilizes the community. I think a lot of times social workers and, and people of faith that are professionals and, and, and caring professionals and, and, um, and these professions that we work with and for people, we're afraid to, to be stabilizing um, elements within our church. And that would be helpful if we just do that. So here's a stop. What not to do. This is on the second side of this, I think. The other side of the paper has this, and I don't know. You're welcome to give those to whomever you wish. Uh, do you have one of these, Rick? Did you get one? I don't, but I'd love one. Let me give them one, and I've emailed it to you as well. I'm actually going to. Oh, if I got the email, it's good. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, listen, listen, listen is kind of the main thing I try to <laughs> And really, it's, it's astounding how many times a pastor wants to talk and stuff. That they did not get into this profession to listen. They got into this profession because they were right. And they, I'm not talking about they, I'm in this profession too, I need to be careful. Um, so creating safe spaces, I'd say there's some things that we really need to highlight on this list. And this is what, on the, what not to do side of things. Don't ever ask if they've killed anybody. That's just absolutely not your business until they choose to tell you. Um, even though for some pastors, 
it's kind of like a litmus test of how bad their war was. It's not your business. And what happens is you move straight into the deepest point of moral conflict, fear, pain, anxiety, and there's so many challenges around the event that occur. So there's a video that I could show you, but there's a guy that um, had to kill someone. And this was a burqa, a woman in a burqa, so you know what a burqa is, and it's a black, long dress, and they, they often strap bombs to themselves and blow up. You know, they're called burqa bombers, where they, men and women both will be dressed in burqa and have explosives attached to them. And they'll get near a convoy and explode themselves and suicide. So this guy was facing that issue, and there was a woman, and they were saying, stop, 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 and she did never stop and he had to kill her. So that's not a helpful thing to talk to him about, especially since later on they found that she had a white flag. You know, and, and then he, you know, so he's got all of this pain and frustration, and you know, he did not know, and you can't go back and undo it, but you would probably do the same thing if you had to do it again, because you don't know what's going on. So that's one thing. The other thing I, I would say to that in terms of just while we're, while we're here, is for that particular individual, there are some really great new therapies that you need to know about if you're not doing them or if you're not aware of them. They're cognitively-based therapies. So CBT, cognitive-based uh, therapies. CPT, cognitive processing therapy, we do a lot of work with that. And one of the main writers of the evidence-based therapy uh, approaches is out of the VA, and she's doing phenomenal. They're showing a ton of great research that is very helpful to go through the, the cognitive-based processing therapies. Um, if any of you are coming to the NFCW conference in St. Louis, there'll be an all-day workshop, which isn't the whole training because it's much more extensive, but it'll begin to introduce that training and how to become certified using some of these methods. Absolutely worth it. Um, there is rapid eye movement, rim. Um, I'm not so... I'm not, I think the problem with that one is nobody knows how it works. But apparently it does work. Um, so there's that one. I, what is that? S E M D R. Yeah. And then there's another one that's exposure therapy. E T. Anyway, they do an exposure therapy where they where they can expose to this over time and that is a cognitively based event where you're riding in a plane right now and it's not hurting you and yes, you hear the noise and you know, but they get exposed to it over time. There's another word to that. I couldn't pick that up on the camera. Could you say that one? I've never heard of CPT though. Cognitive processing therapy is phenomenal. Wow. It's really one of the stronger. Have ones. you faked? No, so it's it's that's worth. Yeah, it's definitely yeah, worth. Do we have any graduates? Yeah, well, yeah. it's it's out of that school. Right, right. So this is it's just one of the. We have a couple of NACSW people, Amelia, who I think one's providing the training. I'd be glad to connect you up with them. I would like for that person to talk to me. Because I would like to, there, there's a 12 day, 12, you know, 12 hours, you do this 12 weeks, uh, one hour a week. Um, 
and they do a lot of guilt, you know, like, so what's a true assessment of their guilt? Would, would you have done anything differently? Probably not, because you didn't know. So what's the deal? I mean, they, they help you think through it cognitively. Which actually is one of the really cool and horrible things about trauma, is that it comes into your brain and it goes straight to your amygdala instead of going through your, you know, the, the processing parts of your brain. So it just goes straight. It's kind of like on your computer when everything just goes straight to your hard drive. And you don't have any folders. You don't have, you, the, it's all in there, but it doesn't have any coding whatsoever. So these therapies help you rename those stories and then help you put the coding in that, that wasn't, that didn't go in in the first place. So it's really cool. But the reason I want to talk to that person, what's that? It's it's really yeah, cool. It's worth it's worth getting. Uh, it's worth getting exposed to. I, I hope it will. Um, but I would like to add a day of spirituality or a week of spiritual you know, what are the spiritual implications to some of these things? And where is God in the midst of it? Then where is God now? And where do you want God to be? So I would love for there to be a thirteenth week. So but that needs to kind of be something that we talk about together. That's great because the person I'm thinking about um, is that we're asking her to write a paper for our journal, but we specifically would like her to have an aspect of spirituality and faith and how that plays a role. And she's sort of struggling with what would that look like. I bet she'd love to have a dialogue partner. John.Oliver at VA.gov. Her name is Laurel Shaler, so when she right. contacts you, what? Um, what else to not do? Oh, yeah, I talked about trying not to fix problems. Y'all know these things. But pastors want to be part of the answer. Well, honey, if you just will do this, then you'll be all right. Let me just fix this for you. Well, no, it's not that. I mean, you know, the, the emotional experience is as much the problem. Um, prematurely assuaging feelings of guilt. So if you say it's okay, you, you killed him, but you didn't mean to, that does not, that's, that's glossing over and not, not really engaging. And it's hard to engage, and it's expensive time-wise and scary and difficult. All these things. Never assume that they're unsaved. I had one guy who said, that's, well, you could need to be saved. And he was serious. No, I probably didn't say it. I'm just feeling depressed because I was in, in this war, and I, I did some things, and I'm sad about it. It's a normal thing. I need help. All right, what else not to do? They don't like to be treated as heroes. Every veteran that I know says, I'm not here. I was doing the job. People that stay there, that die there, they're the heroes. Or their family, my wife's not here. You know, it's interesting. They don't like to be shown off. They don't like to be treated as heroes. So just kind of help people not objectify them. That's the issue, the subject and object. And how can we keep people from objectifying them? Um, but make them, make them truly subjects and who are you and how are you and what's going on. Um, this last one is that don't make, do not make the parishioner define your role. You need to know what your role is. I'm looking into it. Um, so empowering clergy. So here's what we've been doing. Often rural veterans have limited health care options. Um, stigma is often associated with mental health problems. Many times, um, many of our folks, so I, I would not know if faith, and faith would not know if I were in the reserves or our guard or you know, we, we come home and they, they put on this civilian camouflage. So you don't know if someone in the supermarket, the Kroger, or Costco is, is a veteran or is currently serving or not. Now often, it, as you've gotten to know a bunch of veterans, then you'll begin to see haircuts and to begin to see tattoos and to begin to see certain mannerisms, even with hats. Um, 
that you'll understand that person's probably better. Um, but, but mostly they put on a civilian camouflage and we don't know who they are. And they show up in our churches and they need support. But what happens is they're afraid to get help from these folks because of the stigma. Um, so often a pastor can help by referring. And uh, if a pastor can refer someone, it can validate that there is an issue and it can validate the social worker and it can validate the psychologist. And it can destigmatize the use of mental health services. So if you can become friends with your pastor in a way that makes them not scared, then they will then turn around and refer folks. And by referring them, um, Sister Sally more likely the well, pastor said I could come to therapy and be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's okay. And uh, so that's the kind of thing. That and and clergy are often very um, appreciative because they want to refer, but mm-hmm. they just don't have trusted resources out there. Right. But if you can provide them folks they trust and that are effective over time, clergy often are so appreciative and really seeking, seeking that out. I, every couple that I marry, I refer to I refer to social work, mental health, somebody mental health to do family marriage to counseling before they get married. All of the reasons of genogram, family role, you know, past relationships, all those things that y'all do so well. But then the major reason I tell them to go is it demystifies the process of going to get help when we need it. So if we can help the pastors demystify the process, that's a great thing. Um, because it ends up they will then go. They're more, if, if I, I say, just blame it on me. If your mom asks you why you're going to therapy, just say, my pastor made me do it. I'm fine with that. <laughs> good, good. I made you do it. Go do it. You know. But, um, so for pastors, I, in my doctoral dissertation, two things I found. One is the major issue, well, three things. Pastors often know, know that there's a problem with trauma. They often know that an event occurred, and they often understand that, that there are some things that are, that are trauma-related. And it's surprising to me how sensitive they were to that. There's a, very, there's a very good sensitivity for that. They're less aware of what to do, um, and, and they're unaware, they were unaware at this point in time, how valuable community was. And then this last piece that just was such a shock, I put on there, I did this way too long of a study. Poor people that did it were so mad at me. But I put that. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, and then it was just long. Um, so I gave, I gave a symptom and I said, what would you do? And then I left an other blank. Mm-hmm. You know, pray, listen, read the Bible, da 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 other. da 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 So if they're waking up in the middle of the night or if they're having adrenaline rushes or if they break out cold sweats or whatever, you know, I did all those things every time with other. Um, and all of them were related except for a couple of red herrings that I threw in just to see that people were, were awake and they were like, you know, the, the, the statistician said I had to have a few of those. Um, <laughs> But don't tell Harold <laughs> that I don't understand because I'm, I'm on the team. Um, but the issue was ultimately 0.08 of those times when a pastor could think independently to refer to a mental health care provider did they think of it independently. 0.08% of the time. And it turned out the more CPE, the more connection with the medical centers, the more education these people had, the more likely they were to refer. Mm-hmm. The less they had, the less likely. And there were some very interesting faith breakdowns in that as well, which is, was curious to me. Um, 
So those are some things that I try to do. I try to help them refer early, refer often, um, provide the initial pastoral care first. I, I have them do three visits with your pastor. You do three visits with the pastor. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? Let's really hear this out. Sometimes just telling the story two and three times is what the person needs to do. And that's good for them to get started. And then, I'm still your pastor, but here, I'm going to call, I'm going to call Amelia. There's this doctor over the UNC. She's great with this particular thing. And Amelia, you've got a minute, and I will have emailed you. I've got somebody I'm going to be calling you. Um, they'll be coming in, and I'll do a hot referral. And when you do a handoff phone, this is so-and-so introduction, referral uh, statistics show that, that they're more likely to follow through on those referrals. So uh, a hot handoff is, is really important. I would say that at 0.08% of the time, pastors refer to, uh, to, to mental health care providers. I'd be really curious to know how often uh, mental health care providers refer to clergy. Because I get about 0.008 from, I mean, we get consults, but compared to the number of people that are coming. Um, pastors need to know a few things. They need to know that they have limits. And oftentimes, pastors don't want to admit this. We, we just keep going and going until we don't. Um, but time is a limitation. Professional capacity is a limitation. And just sometimes they don't, they're not aware or don't want to admit it. Um, and sometimes their particular role, they cannot hear certain confessions because of the role they're in. But somebody else can. And it's important that that be that be something that they realize for themselves. Do you have an example, John? Well, so sometimes um, in, a, in the Catholic Church, we have a lot of confession that occurs. And in the medical center, they will ask for the local priest to come in instead of their personal priest. Because they don't really, it's not a distrust issue as much as it is just a really clean boundary. I was able to confess, I was able to go to God, but I didn't have to it's not going to be back at my home church. This story is not going to be there. And I don't ever have to worry that this person has power over me in my parish. Mm-hmm. So it's a safety protector for the parishioner. And that would be true about other, about other issues as well. Having to do, we talked about the gay and lesbian and bisexual, transgender, queer issues of the way people define their sexuality. Um, there's a new letter, I, that's in the LGBT. QI, I don't know what I stands for, inquiring maybe. But, I mean, there's a, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that certain pastors just can't handle the truth. <laughs> and it's okay. But I've got a colleague down the road who's at the physical church, and she's great. Let's go talk to her. So sometimes the pastor just needs to get it. I'm still going to be there, still going to come to my church, but they need a place that's safe for themselves. Sometime for another day, another discussion. I'd love to dig more into that because part of social work training are dual roles and dual responsibilities. And by definition, pastors have a number of roles and responsibilities. And when you add this on top, some of those roles come into conflict. Right. And how we can help train clergy to deal effectively with that conflict. In some cases, it is just referring to other clergy because, it, but. I find that that's often a very difficult issue for clergy because they want to be a great friend and they want to be a spiritual mentor and they want to be, you know, someone who's helping their kids sort of grow. And then 
they want to be someone who's going to help them work through substance abuse issue or PTSD, and suddenly how we can help support clergy deal with those multiplicity of roles, some of which just conflict with these right. others. Absolutely. Well, and that's the place where we where we really have to really have to be aware. I, I think the other challenge that we have to understand in, in the multidisciplinary care team is that the pastor's boundaries around families and around parishioners is and needs to be different than your boundary with them as a social worker. Sure. As a social worker, you need to always be aware of transparency and issues. You need to be aware of uh, the, the professional boundary of, you know, we're not going to talk about my family. This is not, you know, and you need to understand, yeah, you need to pay me because then you'll come on time. And you'll, you know. But a pastor's role is different, you know, and it's really important if we understand that, and that's another piece of that, that puzzle. One of the things we teach in the healthy boundaries for clergy um, is transference, counter-transference, and those boundaries. It's really important to yeah. a pastor should know them and be aware of them, um, but they also are going to be talking to the person's wife and their kids. They're going to be teaching Sunday school, right? Or they're going to be preaching a sermon, or they're going to be having dinner with on Wednesday night. You know, so it's and they're going to be teaching their kids in Sunday school and hear about the family and what's going on there. Information that it just. It cuts both it's ways. Complicated. Oh, yeah. It does. And it's better if we work together and name the challenges than, than avoid each other. And I'm, I'm grateful for the invitation to be part of this dialogue. A couple more slides in conclusion. There we go. That works. Um, basically, they do a lot. They take a lead. Clergy do a lot of work. Clergy need your support. Frankly, clergy um, are, are really... It's really a lonely job, and there's a lot of burnout, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of suicide actually encouraging as well. So to be aware of, of, of your capacity to stand with somebody and support them um, can, can take a little bit of the burden off of them and can help them do their work better and can help you engage the parishioners in ways that are more helpful. Thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. We have hit noon, and we are... Oh, wait. Now we hit noon. There's a bunch of bibliographic stuff, and then this is my email address. All right. And these are available to you via email if you wish. Thank you for joining us today for NACSW's Podcast of the Month featured selection. We hope you found today's session useful and that it will support your efforts to thoughtfully integrate Christian faith and social work practice. We also hope that you will consider participating in additional NACSW's activities and events, including NACSW's upcoming convention in the fall, our quarterly audio conference workshops that we offer at no cost to NACSW members, and which includes free CEUs accredited by the Association of Social Work Boards, our online continuing education program, and access to dozens of archived podcasts from the member section of our website. Also, we invite you to join NACSW's Facebook group or our Facebook fan page. For additional information about these and other NACSW benefits and services, you can go to our website at www.nacsw.org. Thanks again for listening in today to our podcast session today.